1: My title was, uh, Was Moses Pregnant? And what I mean by that is, do the words that Moses wrote for us in the Bible, do they contain more meaning than Moses perhaps himself knew? Are they pregnant with meaning? And not only Moses, of course, but uh, other parts of the Bible and the, the Old Testament especially. Consider, for instance... The system of sacrifice, the uh, various kinds of animal sacrifice that Moses instructed the people about, uh, the construction of the tabernacle, uh, both of those things in the Old Testament symbolized things about the ministry of Christ in his earthly life. According to, it's not only my idea, of course, but it's there in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 9.9 says that all this, considering the, uh, speaking of the tabernacle construction, all this is symbolic pointing to the present time, that is, the time of Christ and his work. Hebrews 8.5 says that they, that is, the priests of the uh, Old Testament period, they serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. And so clearly Hebrews is teaching that that sanctuary says something about a heavenly reality which we have come to know through Christ. So uh, it might seem from the book of Hebrews then that things in the Old Testament uh, mean more than what their human authors, in particular Moses, for the uh, sacrificial system and so on, they mean more than what Moses thought. But uh, for other people, and I include among these some evangelicals, uh, the idea that uh, Old Testament writings could mean more than their human authors thought that's no more believable than that Moses should be literally pregnant. And uh, it seems to be, it seems to these people to be a play on two meanings, two meanings that would have nothing to do with one another, just as my title was a play on, on two meanings of the word pregnant, in a sense, and I hope nobody was offended by the title. I'm not intending to be flippant about Moses, but, but only to introduce. A real, what is a real problem in the minds of some evangelicals' over-interpretation. Does Do the writings of Moses, do that? those descriptions of the tabernacle, and do they mean more than perhaps Moses thought, or must we say that they mean exactly what Moses intended them to mean? Well, that's the uh, question that I want to deal with this morning. And I want, uh, first of all, to think about, uh, I was still under uh, section one on the possibility of multiple meanings, the importance of considering the author of, well, any speech or discourse or writing. And so let's stand back a minute for for the moment, uh, stand back from the question of the Bible and think about human communication generally, non-inspired communication. I'm I'm not thinking of words that God speaks now, but words that human beings speak. Suppose somebody says to you, the door is open. What does he mean by that? Well, uh, it depends. Uh, it could mean simply a statement of fact, although it would be a rather unlikely statement to, to make if there's no particular reason for it. Or it could mean somebody was careless. It could mean, get out. <laughs> door is open. <laughs> it could mean, in effect, please shut the door. It could be virtually a request. Uh, and could mean perhaps uh, imply certain other things depending on the circumstances. Or consider uh, a, a situation where you receive a postcard from a friend, and on the postcard are written the words, success at last. Well, presumably that would have some meaning, but the meaning would depend a lot on who sent it to you and what his circumstances were. And uh, the the implications would be vastly different. Now, the point is that in order to understand things that people in our own time are saying to us, we're always taking into account the circumstances in which things are said, and we're taking into account who is saying it and what we already know about that person. Now, we do that automatically, virtually, without even thinking about it. But when you come to the Bible... Some of the things were written long ago. Some of the things were written in circumstances that are no longer familiar to us. And so we sometimes have to make more explicit to ourselves who is the author, what are the circumstances. And uh, of course, some of the same words, success at last, may have rather different implications depending on who said them and when and why. All right? Now, when we approach the Bible, ask, who said it, and when and why, and the answer, I think, immediately is that there are two people simultaneously that are saying the same words. Namely, God himself, the divine author, and a particular human author, Moses, as the case may be, or Isaiah, whoever it is. Now, that would seem to introduce the possibility that there would be two separate meanings, just as, in the case of the postcard with success at last, If if I think of it as coming from one person, it might mean one thing, or if it comes from another person, it might mean something rather different. So that raises the question, what is the relationship? First of all, that the human authors uh, do not claim to be speaking merely of themselves, but rather to be speaking from God and with divine authority. So they point, in a sense, away from themselves as mere human beings to God as the ultimate author of what they are saying. The prophets, for instance, say, thus says the Lord, and in doing so, they alert you and they alert their uh, original audiences long ago to the fact, oh, don't just hear what I'm saying is something uh, that uh, Isaiah says and we know uh, Isaiah and how he has limited knowledge and so on, but rather see this as something that God himself is saying. But in addition to that, God himself, as the divine author of scripture, points here and there, to the importance of our paying attention to the human author as well. In Deuteronomy 5.30, for instance, after God has spoken to the people in an audible voice from Mount Sinai, the people, of course, are afraid, as you may remember, and uh, they uh, ask for God to, uh, not to speak to them directly, but through Moses. And God says in verse 30, go tell them to return to their tents. But you, that is Moses, stay here with me so that I may give you all the commands, decrees, and laws. You are to teach them to follow in the land I am giving them to possess. And uh, elsewhere, of course, there's uh, uh, a reinforcement of the fact, listen to Moses. So listening to Moses is important as well as listening to God. Why? Because... Uh, God has given Moses charge of the people and has given him commandments. Now, what are the implications of that? Well, first of all, the implications of the fact that the human authors point to God as the ultimate author. Several of them, some of them easy, some of them not so easy. First of all, the words have the authority and trustworthiness of the creator, of, the, of God himself, who uh, cannot lie. Prophecy and prediction, in particular, are not simply the guesses of human beings like Isaiah or Jeremiah operating on their own human powers. They are the predictions of God himself who knows the future and who also ordains whatever comes to pass. They are, in fact, then, trustworthy as God himself. Now, you see, that's uh, uh, that's common understanding, I think, among evangelicals with respect to Scripture, but it's important to affirm, isn't it, that we see uh, the divine authorship of Scripture and therefore its authority. But secondly, I think there's uh, a caution here to people who in their pride think that they can criticize the Bible as they criticize any piece of human literature, and of course they're justified in sifting and judging uh, merely human writings, but not in doing so with the Bible. But there's also a misunderstanding, I think, that can crop up of the fact that, that uh, the human beings point as to God as the divine author, and that is this, that uh, what, exceeds, what in the scripture exceeds the bounds of ordinary human knowledge is divine, well that is true, but also therefore not human. Now, it is true that rarely in the Bible there are cases of dictation. In Revelation 2-3, Christ dictates the seven letters to the seven churches of Revelation. And uh, there's no reason to say one way or another whether John, the human author, really understood what was being said. It was, uh, looks like it was pretty irrelevant. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But the letters were dictated. And occasionally, even in the Old Testament, there is indication that the prophets did not fully understand what they were given. Zechariah and Daniel both have to ask uh, what some of the visions mean. But in general terms, I think also we must reckon with the fact that um, when the Holy Spirit comes upon a person, there are no easy bounds that we can set to what that person might understand. The Apostle Paul says, we have the mind of Christ. Uh, perhaps speaking in uh, partly in a general sense of the privileges that Christians have of understanding the will of God through scripture but there's a more particular sense in which that applies to the person who is inspired by God the prophets in the old testament are men who have stood in God's own heavenly council jeremiah 23:18 but which of them jeremiah is talking about the false prophets which of them has stood in the council of the lord to see or to hear his word who has listened and heard, heard his word uh, there's a powerful transformation that takes place in person when under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit he's translated into the heavenly court of God as Jeremiah was or as Isaiah was and uh, mysteries are revealed to him uh, that are unfathomable And they... Again there's an error to avoid here and that is I think that sometimes people think well if God is pointing to the human being in his involvement it must mean <coughs> that any stylistic peculiarities of a particular writing, any situational factors which are special to that particular writing, there are simply what is human about the Bible and therefore not divine. And, and as far as divine authority, then we might overlook them. I think that's a vast mistake. It's a horrible mistake. Why do I think so? Well, because God himself is competent In speaking Hebrew and Greek, he's competent in using all the stylistic features that he may wish. He's competent to speak to situations which he himself has created and providentially superintended. Uh, God is not a God who is simply a God far off, but a God who fills heaven and earth, a God who came and met us where we were in Jesus Christ, ultimately. So I think that all the way through the Bible, the characteristics are God is speaking to us in language that is fully human, not because... The Bible is less than divine, but precisely because it is divine, and that God is confident to come all the way to where we are, and so it's precisely those factors which some people think of as sort of merely human, and therefore show the marks of the sort of the Bible's uh, uh, um, oh, its a insufficiency or something like that, which I think we ought to seize on and say that shows precisely God's thorough mastery of the medium of creation and of human language. So that means uh, you see I'm arguing I think what uh, these texts uh, have already argued that all of the bible is fully human and all of it is fully divine rather than we're saying well there's part of it which is divine namely those things which are inaccessible to normal human knowledge and there's part of it which is merely human namely those things which show the stylistic uh, features or situational interest that belong to particular human authors. No Yet address all the questions which we might have about, say, the sacrificial system in Mosaic times or about the tabernacle in Mosaic times. What about the book of Hebrews and what it does in explaining the significance of animal sacrifice, in explaining the significance of the tabernacle? Were all those things uh, really there in Mosaic times? Were they really understood by everybody in those times? Well, I think the answer there has to be a yes and a no, that it's more complex than a simple yes or no might uh, understand. And, and so to help you with that, I would suggest several analogies, and that's going to be Roman numeral three, to help us understand what God has been doing in the course of revealing his purpose and program and working it out over centuries, because that's part of the challenge of understanding what he said earlier, namely in the Old Testament, in the light of what he said later. Now, uh, before I get to these analogies, let me say one thing, and that is that I think in our understanding of the Bible, it is better to focus not so much on what a prophet like Moses understood from God and the revelations he got from God, but rather on what the words of Scripture actually express. The reason for that is that prophets in special cases may have understood more than what they wrote. They need not have written it all down, after all. They need not have expressed all that they saw in, this, in the revelations that God gave them. Now, they wrote down what God wanted them to write down. All right? I don't think we, we should introduce some kind of uh, question about Scripture because of that. But the fact is that they may have understood more than they communicated to the people. All right? They may have kept in their minds things that they didn't write down. And what we're concerned to look at is really what they wrote down, because that is what God has really told us, as opposed to what he told them. He may have revealed to them more. Or on the other hand, he may have revealed to them less, and that's the crucial question. Is there sometimes when they didn't fully understand what they wrote down. It certainly looks that way a few times in Zechariah and Daniel, where... Um, <laughs> Zechariah wants to ask, you, do you know what this, mean? this means? And he says, no, my Lord. <laughs> so uh, sometimes it looks like uh, the human authors didn't fully understand. But in any case, what we want to focus on is what they actually expressed. All right. But now, uh, how do we understand, uh, still having focused on that expression, look at what the tabernacle expresses to the Israelites? And look at what now we understand in the light of the coming of Christ. Are we able to understand more? I think so. How do we explain that? Well, here's where the analogies, I hope, will be helpful. The first analogy I would like to use is that of an artist painting a painting. And as he paints, he may begin with a few broad brushstrokes. And already you begin to see the beginnings of a landscape or of a portrait or whatever it is that he's going to do. And so you see already a f- picture. Suppose then that artist does it that way. And you see uh, almost from the first three or four strokes the beginning of a picture. So you know what he is painting, all right? And he is communicating to you through that picture, uh, through his painting, something of, of how he sees uh, some area of the world, all right? So he's saying something already through those first strokes. But now he goes on, and as he goes on, he fills in the picture, and gradually things come into focus. And when the picture is completed, if you go back in your memory and think, what was he doing with those first few strokes, you may be able to understand the significance of them more than you did at the beginning. Now, what am I saying there? I'm saying that God is both saying something to the people back there in the Old Testament, something that is true and is helpful and that is encouraging for them or rebuking to their sins, and that he may proceed to fill it out in such a way that when we look back from the standpoint of the completed picture, we see significance in what he has done that was not fully available to the original uh, people in the Old Testament period. And I believe that this idea is not uh, something just out of my hat, but it's something which is is presented in the Bible itself. For instance, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, there's an emphasis on the finality of what has come. He has spoken to us by his Son whom he appointed heir of all things. Uh, Romans 1, beginning with verse 1, is, I think, even more clear about this idea of what is the technical term for it is progressive revelation. Listen to Paul speaking of his position in relationship to the Old Testament. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart from, for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures. All right, so Paul is saying it's there already in the Old Testament. Regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, now that too is predicted in the Old Testament, and who the spirit of through who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, you can find indications of all those things in the Old Testament, prophecies relating to all those things. So Paul is saying it's already there, but of course then he goes on to expound that gospel with a depth and a fullness, which is nowhere done in any one place in the Old Testament. And in Ephesians 3, another key passage, he talks about the mystery which has now been revealed as it was not in the Old Testament. Now I don't think he's saying that nobody knew anything about it because Romans 1 is indicating, of course, that it was promised of old. But the Apostle Paul... Now, that song has meaning to the the young child at a very early age. The father is saying something that is true. is teaching him something about the content of the Bible. But now the son grows up. And as he grows, he learns more from his father. And eventually, maybe, he uh, does a very thorough Bible study over a number of years for himself. And at the end of all that, he uh, is reminiscing and thinks back about how his father taught him Jesus loves me when he was a young child. But now, as he comes back to those same words, they're filled with a new significance because he sees them in the light of all the understanding which he has achieved as an adult. And he says, My father intended that those words should have all the associations which they have now. Not immediately, but he knew that I was going to grow up. He knew that he as a father was going to say more things to me. He knew that I would study the Bible for myself. And he intended that from the beginning. He intended that those words should not be stood in isolation, but that they should be built on, that they should be filled out by what he said later and then, as of course, as I went on to study the Bible for myself. But at the same time, there's a sense in which he was just communicating to me on a very simple level back there, wasn't saying everything at the same time, wasn't communicating the entire content of the Bible in all its fullness and all its depth to a child who couldn't have borne that at, at uh, his stage. See, there's a kind of both-and there, isn't there, of saying you've got to understand that the father had a wisdom in in the way in which he communicated to his young child, that he knew the child could understand certain things but not others, and that we don't then say he was saying everything (laughs) all at once in just a few words. On the other hand, at the end of the process, when you look back, you say well yeah he was because those words weren't intended to be in isolation now turn this back now and apply it to god's communication to his people in the bible now i think the analogy between a father and son is not a fanciful one some of you may remember even without my mentioning it galatians 4 verse 3 where the apostle paul is reflecting it's not quite the same point as what i've made but I think it's still uh, relevant. Galatians 4, verse 3, the Apostle Paul is reflecting on the entire experience of God's having worked out His purpose through the Old Testament times, and he says, So, when we were children, we we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Before this, He's talked about a child during his minority, He's under guardians and trustees. Now, what the Apostle Paul is saying is that, that was the Old Testament period; that Israel was like a child under guardians and trustees. And now the time of maturity has come. Likewise, Deuteronomy eight, verse five. God says to Israel, as the father disciplines his son, so I have disciplined you. So the analogy between a human father and a son is one that is built in to the Bible itself. And I think it helps us to understand that God can say something that is real and true to people in the Old Testament, and that that is not yet the end of the story, that he has intention that it should be filled out by what comes later. One final analogy, and then we're, we're ready to ask about how we use this. <laughs> the final analogy is imagining you are reading a mystery novel, Agatha Christie, Dorothy Sayers, whoever it is. Okay, And you read through to the end. And you find out who done it. <laughs> then you read back again. And the second time, you notice all the clues that you overlooked (laughs) the first time through. Now, that I'm going to use that as an analogy, but let me say right away, it's not a perfect analogy, because often in mystery stories, one of the purposes of the author is deliberately to conceal something from you, right? And I think that God is not out to do the same kind of thing. And yet I think the analogy will hold at this level, uh, you could use not only a mystery story, but any good piece of literature, whether it's, uh, and I'm, I, I think first of all of fiction, I'm not intending to say the Bible is fiction by any means, but think of, of Hamlet or Macbeth or something, uh, second and third reading, you begin to see things that you don't pick up the first reading. All right, having seen the end and seen the purposes of the author in the end, then you go back again and you see how those purposes are subtly worked in earlier on. All right, now what I'm saying is that the entire history of God's people from the beginning of the world to to the end is sort of like that, in that... Uh, We've gone through the experience corporately uh, from Israel in the Old Testament through to the Christians in the New Testament of reading the Bible through once, of seeing God's purpose worked out once, and now go back to the earlier part in the light of what you've learned of the culmination in Jesus Christ. And you're bound to see things that were not visible or so visible to people on their first reading, now there's one more thing about that illustration and that is that there's a kind of enjoyment in the second reading of a mystery novel of seeing the subtlety of how the author works out his plan. And you see that subtlety partly as you appreciate what he's setting up for the first reader. <laughs> that is, that that he's taking into account what you can and cannot know at a given stage in the story the first time through, and the second time through you watch him doing that. And I think it's the same way with the Bible, that there's there's an enormous appreciation for the wisdom of God that we can gain by doing what I've called the second reading, all right? By reading the whole Bible, even the early parts, in the light of Everything they know. Do that second reading, but do it watching what God is doing in the first reading, all right? Watching what He's doing with those people back there who didn't know everything. And you appreciate the the richness of Scripture as you wouldn't just saying, oh, I'll read it, you know, as if everybody knew the whole thing Mm -hmm. (laughs) all the time. Read it, in other words, just as a modern person without thinking about the fact that. These things took time for God to work out. In conclusion, then, what do we do with uh, what I presented here? Well, I've got two basic suggestions for you. And the first is that I think for maximum profit from the Bible, we need both a kind of first reading and a second. That is, a first reading where we concentrate on What was God saying to those people back there with their limited knowledge, as opposed to our knowledge of what God has done, our knowledge with the whole of Scripture available before us? And that, as I said, is what is commonly called grammatical historical interpretation. And everyone can do it to an extent because you just have to have some imagination of of what it was like in other times and circumstances as God was working. The second reading, we also need that of synthesis. That is, look at what it now means in the light of the completed Bible that we have. You need, in other words, sensitivity to the richness of Scriptures, analogous to the sensitivity which I'm suggesting for maximum profit from your mystery novel or from... Shakespeare or Macbeth, with all the differences that there are because Scripture is is not fiction but, of course, uh, the heart of the story of God's purposes for the world, Uh, with all the differences, yet I think there is a genuine analogy there. Second point is that I think we can appreciate the value of some diversity in the body of Christ. I hope that everyone can do a bit of what I've called the first reading and the second, But some people are particularly gifted to concentrate their efforts in one area. For instance, there are scholars and specialists who are particularly good at doing a first reading. Uh, Although sometimes they will try to pull the wool over your eyes by denying that there's anything more than a first reading. (laughs) And so beware of them when they do that. (laughs) But we need scholars and specialists, don't we? If we're to appreciate the full wisdom of God and what he did in people long ago and in other circumstances because the scholars get out special tools to try to reconstruct what was really going on and try to learn all they can about those circumstances and so on and make that available if they're good and godly people, make that available to the church as a whole. And secondly, we need people who are non-scholars, who are non-specialists, in the sense of specialists in ancient times, in order to concentrate on the second process, what I call the second reading, but particularly the synthesis of what the whole Bible says and the synthesis of what the whole Bible says applied to now. And that's where there's going to be as much diversity as there's diversity of callings of God to each one of you in different circumstances. We need people who are saying, what does the whole Bible say to the area of law? What does the whole Bible say to the area of government and politics? What does the whole Bible say to the area of engineering and so on? What does the whole Bible say to the area of cooking meals in the kitchen, of raising children? (laughs) We need all those things. And that's something that no one can replace any of us. We're all indispensable members of the body at that point and all have something to share in terms of helping other people to to see the implications of the Bible as we work them out in all of life. Let's then close with prayer. Lord, we pray that the body of Christ may be built up in some of its wholeness that we may... Uh, go beyond some of the contentiousness which has often arisen through people who are using the Bible at, at odds with one another, but that we may be able to grow in the full appropriation of the riches of your word as we meditate on it day and night. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.